Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Well, hi, I'm so excited that you're here to join us today and our two guests who we've had on the podcast before. If you haven't heard our first episode with Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor, um, I would encourage you to go back and look for it and have a good listen. But today we're having a completely different conversation and it is an awesome one. You are going to love it. Um, Mary Taylor and Richard Freeman together have over 80 years of collective yogic wisdom and experience. But one of the things that I love the most about them um, is that they're real human beings. You know, they're householders. They have a child together. Um, they've traveled the world, maintained a yoga studio, maintained a household, made a living off of yoga. Um, but also went deep, deep, deep into the teachings and the practices and the philosophy and just this ancient tradition. You know, to many of us yogic teachers and practitioners, you know, from all over the world, uh, Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor are really like our top Western teachers that we aspire to be like and to um, emulate because of their grace, because of their sense of humor, which is truly delightful and a joy, um, because of their their depth of wisdom and experience in the practices of yoga and how they've um, really taught us to integrate these practices with our regular daily lives and our regular living. You know, they haven't shied away from taking quite esoteric teachings um, and integrating them into everyday life. And so today we are touching upon all kinds of wonderful topics like raising children, um, practicing as you age, how to um, you know, age with grace while you're sort of saying goodbye to certain physical aspects of the yoga practice. Uh, we're going to even touch upon the Wizard of Oz and you can start thinking right now, you know, do you need more heart? Do you need more courage? Do you need more brains? Um, and what all of this has to do with the Bhagavad Gita. We talk about these beautiful patterns of prana and apana and you'll find out about subtle wiggling and how you can even connect to the deeper uh, subtle sensations and vibrations of prana and apana through wiggling. Um, there's just so many, many beautiful, wonderful gems in this this episode and I, I can't wait for you to dive in and have a listen. Um, part of what we're sharing is their new upcoming course called Living Yoga, Embodying the Teachings of the Bhagavad Gita, which I am incredibly excited to share with you. Registration opens uh, in two days on September 21st. And within the course, you're going to get 13 hours of video teachings. There's three live calls with Richard and Mary, as well as um, the audio 
that you can download and listen to, and also PDF transcripts. And when you register through me, I'm uh, humbly uh, helping them, offering it to as many people as possible. Uh, You will also get two tutorial conferences. We're going to have a little bit of a study group for those who want to join me in um, learning from this course and participating. And I'll also throw in a bonus of a workshop, an online workshop date to be announced with me uh, at some point later this year. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm just so excited to, to offer this course to you. Um, these bonuses with me are free at no additional cost. You just need to um, message me, email me, and you can find all the information on my website and, um, and all the information about the course um, is there too in a link. So you're going to get so much from this course, the foundational teachings of the Bhagavad Gita from their new book, which is uh, a translation of the Bhagavad Gita, but so much more than that. It's really going into the philosophy and their understanding of it. You're going to develop uh, practices that you can do, um, during difficult times in your life, during times of trauma or stress, and more clarity so that you can start living your life in alignment with your purpose. Uh, There's a focus on compassion and kindness and how we can integrate that at deeper and deeper levels, as well, of course, yoga and meditation practices and uh, a deeper connection, you know, how we can all feel more integrated uh, within ourselves, but also integrated as a world um, and with each other. So I would love for you to join the course with me and join my little study group and get the two extra bonus tutorial calls, as well as a free workshop coming up. Um, But even if you don't join through me, it's no problem at all. I would encourage you to just purchase the course. Um, You can find all of the information. It comes out in two days, September 21st. You'll be hearing more about it then. And registration closes on October 11th. So be sure you sign up and um, join before October 11th because that's your last opportunity. Um, So yeah, it's going to be really profound. So without further delay, I will open up this conversation. and I hope that you love it as much as I do. Uh, Richard and Mary are just awesome human beings, and um, we have a really delightful time with them here in this podcast episode. So please enjoy. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I am so excited for this conversation today. We we really had to do a lot of research this for this one. We had to really study. <laughs> we did do a little bit of studying for sure, because today we are meeting with Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor. Hi, guys. How are you? Hello. Hey there. We're okay. <laughs> That's good. You're all doing well. <laughs> How's Colorado? Currently, it's very hot and uh, dry, dry. <laughs> and we keep hoping for rain. You know, the we can see rain and the, there's a lot of rain in the mountains, but right where we are, we're missing out. Oh. So, 
Mm. Are you getting any of the smoke from the fires? We are. Yeah, it's been awful. And it's so early in in the fire season. Yeah. So we're hopeful that rains will come. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. There must be some Vedic ceremony or something you could do. That's true. <laughs> that would be superstitious. <laughs> A fire sacrifice. Yeah. So. Yes. <laughs> Some kind of yagna for rain. <laughs> so every every Sunday I watch my my football team and I do everything exactly the same way, you know, with the same outfit and the same kind of food and the same <laughs> uh, hat so that I can impact the results of what's on the television. Oh, that's very generous of you. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's a sacrifice of, of energy to well, the I'm convinced that I can I can make an impact on the results of the television. I've been somehow rewarded <laughs> by that behavior in the past. I'm I'm they can hear me, you know. <laughs> they can feel your vibes. I think so. I think that's what prayer is, isn't it? Yeah, but it's interesting. We're all connected somehow, right? Mm. Maybe it really does make a difference. (laughs) You should not, you know, our advice would be don't stop that behavior. (laughs) (laughs) You never know. (laughs) You never know, right? Oh, is, 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 can I get that on the on the record? That's from both of you. That is your. That's both of your advice. Is to I should continue this behavior. Well, <laughs> it's hard not to be religious. Yeah, you just gotta pay more attention. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh. It is. It's instinctual, isn't it? I yeah, it's uh, we do it all the time, and I don't think people recognize that they're being religious if they have some sort of um, belief system in oh, this is how things are, and that's essentially um, a trust in some theory, and it can be a terrible theory, <laughs> or a great theory, or a great one, yeah, or in between, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Mm. You, you know, um, I, I, it's unimaginable. It's unthinkable to me that anyone in our audience wouldn't know uh, who you, who you are, who you both are. <laughs> um, so I'm. I, I should do an introduction, um, but obviously, to me, to us anyway, our guests need no introduction. No, <laughs> and and yet we should still, you know, say their names and say something nice about them that's wholly inadequate to describe the totality of their contribution to culture. Um, I mean, what do you say? You know, so, but <laughs> so um, Google it. Google it. <laughs> Google Mary Taylor and Richard Freeman. We we have this. Um, if we have this uh, quote from your website that we wanted to relay, but we also want to encourage you to pay attention to the to the vibe in the room, which is, and that's a part of the experience. That's part of why they don't need an introduction is how you feel around them. But they have they have this from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, the great Russian author: the line dividing good and evil 
cuts to the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? And this is exactly how I feel about the Atlanta Falcons, is that I want to destroy them. <laughs> um, can, you, can you describe... But what about their opponents? <laughs> or, or just the Rastra, I want to destroy him as well. Um, can, can you describe what this, this, um, this quote means? Why is it that it's on, on your page? Well, we all carry um, in our subtle body, deep inside of us, um, we carry all beings, and we know that all beings are ultimately us, or the same as us. And uh, even if they're uh, someone you know who is not very nice, um, or we think is not very nice. And so if we are, if we reject them, even if they're reject totally rejectable, um, <sighs> we're rejecting part of ourselves, hmm. and uh, we, and that has a repercussion in our body or in our embodiment, um, in that it creates a certain pattern or samskara that then keeps reappearing, uh, often in what we would consider to be a, a subconscious or unconscious way that we project out onto others. Uh, and that projection is often those others are other beings that we've reduced to just our formulas or ideas about them, uh, just as we do to ourselves. And so when we reject uh, even those people who are uh, not very nice, uh, we are doing it also to ourselves and uh, so we're unable to find, you know, compassion, sympathy. And uh, I think Solzhenitsyn was doing this because uh, the arrival of uh, Stalinism, Leninism, uh, was based on the hatred of others, you know, blaming others, uh, and eventually even uh, intellectuals, academics, uh, scientists, uh, thinkers, uh, they had to be rejected because they ultimately were the enemy because they stood in the way of their theory of progress for the people. Hmm. And so in order to serve the people, we have to uh, kill millions and millions and millions of them. Uh, and so the it's, that was a problem. <laughs> it's it's the rational choice, though. When you know, choice. like uh, like Descartes would say something like that, like you know, this is this is reasonable. If these if this is uh, the origin of our of what of our um, problem, well, then to be rational would be you know you execute the Romanovs. That's that's the that's the um, what is that when it just crushes empathy and 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 love? How, how can why is it that rationality can do that? Oh, good. Yeah, I I think one of the reasons is that uh, to arrive at that level of um, 
sort of superficial understanding of something requires that you cut yourself off mm. from your own vulnerabilities, um, which though the whole meaning of being vulnerable is that you, you know, you are vulnerable, you are at the mercy in a sense to other things. But if you cut yourself off from that feeling that indeed we are fragile, that indeed we are all vulnerable in certain ways, then you cut yourself off from the feeling of unity with others because you have uh, evaded your fullness, the, your flaws, your uh, the parts of you that you don't like. You have evaded some of the important things that give full balance to who you really are. And so I think people get into that mind state out of fear. And it's fear projected out onto others. But actually, it seems that if you look again, that it's they're fearful of their own uh, flaws. They're fearful of their own uh, sort of the parts they feel don't understand things. They're fearful of being disconnected, even though that action makes you more disconnected. And so it's this complicated thing that I, I kind of think is rooted in fear. I don't know. What do you think? Um, fear that's rooted in ignorance, yeah. which is you think that I am the story of me. And so you can only be irrational with things that are symbolic of who I am. That's so rationality is a manipulation of symbols mm. um, with the mind. And we've reduced ourselves to just things that are symbolic of us, which is some bio or some, you know, we have all kinds of different languages inside and we reduce others to that. And so then you might as well be rational or you manipulate it <laughs> logically. But that, that basic mistake is we've reduced ourselves and we've reduced others uh, to just ideas about ourselves and others. And uh, that's really sad. And the whole thing in yoga um, or practice is to pause, you know, pause the, the symbolism and just get a direct experience of the that what we are is way beyond, you know, just the ideas about who we are. And, uh, yeah. and he was a he was a very very religious man. Grew up, you know, in as a, I think as a in sort of the Orthodox religion, and then rejected it. Yeah, Solzhenitsyn, and he. And so he had this part of, you know, we were joking about religion before, but part of what religion allows us is this, you know, when it's working well, it allows us to feel the vulnerability because we are, we have um, the support in a sense of our faith. And then where it goes wrong is when we become dogmatic within our faith or, and the, or the, the system within which we are, you know, mm. expressing religion becomes dogmatic itself. That's when it derails. 
But before that happens, it's that sort of inspirational feeling of, you know, trust in something bigger than oneself, which is a vital part of being a more whole human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And it's so interesting. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit <clears throat> about this earlier, about the the energy that it takes to, um, you know, like rather than just like read one sentence on Twitter, but actually like read an Instagram post <laughs> or the attention and the time that it takes to sit and listen to a podcast, right? You have to work a little bit to uh, engage with people and you have to exert energy and um, intelligence to actually connect with someone on a level that's beyond this symbology. And I, I think like even emojis, you know, you talk about different symbols and languages that we've sort of reduced, um, you know, <laughs> words and emotions and too, you know, it's like if you um, see someone, yeah, if you see someone, a nice comment, you know, you're like, oh, heart, right? That yeah. takes very little energy to actually like comment on something with an emoji or a series of emojis, <laughs> or a series of hearts, are really helpful right? Sometimes. Rather than to like really like go inside and like digest what's been said, or or to feel gratitude and to express it mm. and to like write actual words and to make that connection. <laughs> and it's it's just it just reminded me of that because it's sort of a beautiful thing that that as as the world speeds up, as things become quicker, as we become sort of consumed with, by so much information coming at us all the time, that our brains, you know, they're looking for the the quickest route and the and the easiest thing rather than like really taking that time, like you say, Mary, to be vulnerable, to be curious, to um, you know, have that attention and time to devote to other human beings and not reduce them into these these symbols or these archetypes or these sort of, um, you know, characters of, of themselves. That's a great point about the emojis. And, it, and then what <laughs> goes on beyond that, and sticking with the emoji idea, but it's <laughs> actually a bigger, you know, bigger uh, sort of idea is that oh my gosh what if you instead of put putting the heart you you know you slip and you put the you know pile of poop or something exactly. and and it becomes so much of like are you com- you're trying desperately to communicate but um, also you're putting out an image of being hip and this and that and the other and and so mm. it. And, and we do this not only with emojis, we do this in everyday life where yeah. we stop being present. We buy into the uh, image that others have of us. Mm. And then we begin thinking that's our whole self. That's everything that is us rather than the union of, you know, the kind of messy things and the beautiful things and the complex confused things, et cetera, that, that if we can show up to life with all of those aspects, um, you know, not like sort of disorganized and spewed out on the table, but they're (laughs) all, you know, sort of grounded through an embodied experience, then we can be more whole and full and actually of better benefit to others because we 
those who are there who are confused or those who, you know, are hip or whatever, there's a, the ability to really relate hmm. on all these different levels and see, oh, this is kind of this even playing field where we're all showing up as who we actually are in our fullness. And so on one hand, having things like emojis is wonderful because it allows this fast communication. And on another hand, you know, we get trapped into uh, this idea of not taking risks and, and not trusting mm -hmm. that, that we might have something better to contribute or more, um, more interesting. Are, so it's, it's an interesting world we're in at this point. <laughs> you two, um, I imagine, must be familiar with uh, Robert, Dr. Robert Sapolsky, the, the neuroendocrinologist. He wrote this book, uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Yeah, yeah. He, in his, uh, he wrote a, oh, I forget the name, but he wrote a, he has a new book out and it, it talks about the effect that the endocrine system has on our personalities. And there was a, a piece to it. I was thinking of it when I was watching your, the videos on your website this morning. Um, he was talking about say uh, testosterone and how we have this idea about testosterone that's a little outmoded, that it, it doesn't actually create um, aggressiveness as much as it creates perfectionism. And so you see a lot of young men really, you know, trying to master their their push-ups, you know, when they have a lot of testosterone, or master their math when they have a lot of testosterone, and or their mantras, or their, their <laughs> mantras, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. As you might, as you probably remember, um, and I, but conversely, the we have a different idea about uh, estrogen as well. That estrogen creates this, this you know, this nurturing, but he was arguing that what you see with estrogen is actually a, a tightening of the circle of the tribe. And with more estrogen, you, you see stronger demarcations of who's in the circle and who's outside of the circle, which seems so, which when you, what you were saying before about, you know, why when people, you know, join cults or, or join um, religions or, authoritarian regimes, that it, there's this fear. But I think um, contextualized this way with estrogen, you can see how, well, this is about a mom protecting her, the babies, right? Which mm -hmm. is so, so you can recognize why that would be so important to her. It's, it's like, yeah, protect the babies, get this guy out of the of the tribe, he's not in line with the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. Or protecting your country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and so how, how can we balance that? You know, how do we expand that circle while also, you know, being safe? You know, I, so much of it is, that is really um, back to what Richard was saying, you know, catching ourselves when we drop into basic avidya, where we 
separate out from others in our minds. See, you know, because even if you have a tribe and this person's, you know, a threat to it, etc., there is a ring of awareness beyond that, and then an, a wide, a bigger ring outside of that, where there's a big picture where it's all interrelated. And what happens so often and easily is that we get tripped up somewhere along there. And yes, you need to protect the baby, but then by uh, objectifying the one who is rejected, essentially, you know, this is back to that quote where you've ripped your heart in half Mm -hmm. as to good and evil. Um, then, then you've begun to do some some damage that can be irreparable, because you have stopped seeing uh, the fact that everything is interpenetrating in some bigger picture kind of way. Even though that doesn't mean evil things happen, and you just say, "Oh, that's fine. I just accept that as it is." But that you you recognize what needs to be done under any cer- some certain circumstances like that. and th- But you don't uh, sort of fortify your own identity and your own ego or your people's own ID- identity mm-hmm. um, and then reject the others. And it's, it's human nature to kind of drop immediately into the better than, worse than, mm-hmm. different than uh, paradigm. Mm-hmm. But as, as yogis, we begin to practice or as those of us who study Buddhist practices, we begin to practice looking at, well, well, where does compassion come into this? Where does love come into this? Um, and where does um, kindness come into this? Forgiveness, where do those things fit in that kind of realm? Because they're part of the picture too. Yeah, I think when someone's practicing, um, there's automatically they flip into this uh, state of thinking where they are tribal, or they are, uh, you know, selfish, or uh, and and somehow the because they in the past set up connections to uh, other people. Occasionally, those other people will remind them <laughs> that uh, there's more to it than that, and so giving them then the uh, the courage to uh, reach out or to communicate, and and still even uh, seeing all other beings with love um, and feeling that you still might have to act in a uh, difficult way. And of course, as a last measure. So, you know, and we do this with our, you know, the, the very last thing is I'll, you know, put up another wall or mm-hmm. uh, do something um, politically, uh, you know, difficult. Um, mm-hmm. But, and so, but, and you don't know until you actually try. And this is where the, the courage comes that, uh, is so unusual, uh, where you, uh, in a sense, reach out to or figure out ways of reaching out, uh, at least for your own understanding of 
you know, these problem areas or those others that are problematic. And then. Yeah. And that really relates right back harmony to what you were saying about reading the full text rather than the, um, you know, like one sentence hashtag (laughs) um, about something and that you give it, you know, you give it context, you give things context, and then you interface with them on that level. Mm -hmm. Not to say those other things don't serve a purpose, they do. Mm -hmm. But if we get that because they are, because our world is so fast, because it's fractured right now in so many ways, um, it's easy to kind of overly emphasize the the that as aspect of not looking deeply at things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me also um, what Richard was saying about you know this sort of tribalism when you first, especially when you first start practicing, you kind of um, in some ways start to like protect yourself and your environment. And, and in a way it's helpful. Like if you have a young tree, you have to, you know, if you build a fence around it, so the animals don't eat it and you know, (laughs) it's the weather, the wind doesn't, you know, rip it out or whatever, you kind of protect it in a certain way so that it can grow. But if we don't ever take the fence away from our, our practice and our lives, then our lives kind of become smaller and smaller. Rather than, um, you know, at a certain point, the the trees has roots and it's strong and you need to open those boundaries back up to allow, you know, more people or more influences or more experiences back into your, your world. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, it's almost as if it were part of nature. Uh, <laughs> the things we do. Uh, and that's part of also the, you know, the practice is you start to see, well, the way my mind is working is part of nature. You know, it's, mm-hmm. you know, I have my, you know, I do all of the crazy things that I uh, accuse others of doing. Yeah. And, and then also, I am also uh, the, the hero, or mythological heroic one who can, uh, you know, see through and face that. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. I, I really, when you when you were talking about courage a moment before, it, I, I wanted to ask if it, the heart of the Bhagavad Gita is is really Krishna imploring Arjuna to be brave. Like that's what the whole text is mm-hmm. is for. It's 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 giving him all the reasons why he should be courageous. Is that true? Would you say that? Yeah. <laughs> He's saying stand up and, uh, you know, which means have good posture. Uh, <laughs> he was slumping, a very rare thing for Arjuna, but he was slouching at the beginning. <laughs> like, Come on, have some better posture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, take up the work and defeat the enemy, which is ignorance. Uh, he says, stand up and do the yoga in certain lines. And then, uh, you know, and trust, you know, give up all of your formulations, all of your dharmas, and just uh, 
come to me or see me in all beings. And uh, it takes a lot of courage to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and courage in the fact that you don't have a, uh, a dharma because you've just given them all up or a <laughs> religious formula so that it's a logical thing. But it's more like you're feeling uh, viscerally, uh, you know, through the heart, other beings. Hmm. And it's kind of a silly thing when you, you know, go back to your own childhood and you may have hmm. read um, The Wizard of Oz and the lion, you know, got courage and what he got was a heart. Hmm. <laughs> and, and in the, you know, Buddhist teachings in particular, the idea of fortifying the spaciousness, the vastness, and the tenderness of heart um, is, is at the foundation of so much of the teachings, as it is in yoga, like as it is in the Gita, the heart um, in the very end of the Gita, you know, it's come to me, drop essentially come to my heart. Mm. We are one. Mm -hmm. I love that you related that back to the Wizard of Oz because I sort of feel like, um, you know, those those characters, I never really thought about this till you mentioned it, but, you know, the lion looking for the courage and the tin man looking for the heart. and Oh, the tin man. Was yeah, the, the scarecrow looking for the brain. And it's sort of yeah. like those three aspects, the, the brain, the intelligence, the jnana, and the lion, yeah. the courage, the action, the karma, and then the heart, the bhakti. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's sort of an uh, interesting parallel all of a sudden mm -hmm. <laughs> that I never yeah, really saw before. Yeah, the author, was, Baum, or whatever his name was, was, was very into some of this Eastern thought. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's, it's, it's fascinating because we have these things. Um, you know, given to us and we, we forget. <laughs> yeah. And then we, and then we relearn them and then we forget them again. <laughs> At least that's my personal experience. Yeah. There's, there's an archetype there of um, the wicked old witch who is the, the matriarch of the village telling everyone what to do. She needs to be destroyed. That's... <laughs> yeah. Her estrogen, her estrogen was out of control. <laughs> So we'll start her out with a good diet <laughs> before we actually eliminate her. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Full circle right there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one thing that one of our listeners um, wrote in and asked me about was um, she is a 74-year-old woman who... Um, well, we have a couple, I have a couple of 70 year old women who listen to our podcast regularly that often, uh, write in, but, yeah. um, th in this particular case, she'd had a couple of shoulder surgeries and, um, had been, you know, having a full practice like into her late sixties until these shoulder <laughs> surgeries. And, um, now was like trying to regain, you know, her chatwari position and, and different things in her practice and feeling a little bit discouraged about the prospects of her physical sort of, um, growth, uh, and capacity to gain 
uh, her asana practice back and um, have it be what it used to be when she was like 68 instead of 74. <laughs> <laughs> Good old days. Um, but for, you know, it's interesting. It, it brought up something for me because, you know, even when I think back to, um, you know, five years ago or seven years ago, there was a range of motion in my in my own body that was very easily accessible that, you know, in the last two or three or four years has uh, <laughs> diminished quite significantly. Yeah. Not that it will never come back. Maybe it will, but probably never. <laughs> but <laughs> as as you know, practitioners who have been been practicing yoga and in, in various, uh, you know, streams and capacities, asana, meditation, pranayama, all these different elements um, through, I mean, decades, 30, 40, 50 yeah. years even? 50. I think we're going on 50 <laughs> years now. Yeah. How, have you, how have you dealt with this sort of um, loss? And I know you, Mary, have been through even like some, some other health things too and seen your practice kind of ebb and flow. How do you maintain yeah. your courage? Yeah, <laughs> your courage in the face of great loss. <laughs> it's it's hard, you know, to um, to deal with that because it happens to all of us, you know. And we we Richard and I have joked recently about that that saying that you know youth is wasted on the on the young on the young. Yeah. George and, um, George Bernard Shaw. Yeah, yeah, and that and. and Really, what has struck me when I was thinking about that question is that yes, it is. It can be um, really frustrating, and it can be really um, sort of disheartening when we've worked at something like yoga asana or pranayama. Or it, it doesn't happen so much for me yet with meditation, um, but you know, as particularly with asana, when the body goes through the natural aging process and we are forced to face the fact that, um, that things are different in the body and things that might have been easy before don't come so easily. And what I'm often reminded of is our wonderful friend and fellow teacher and mentor, um, Robert Thurman, has this um, thing he talks about often, and he actually just included it in his most recent book. And it is this idea that, you know, people come to these practices, in a sense, looking for the clear light or looking for enlightenment or liberation or something like that. And so there's this motivation um, to, you know, do well and really practice hard and all of that. And he talks about it more like our day-to-day -day lives that you, you know, you live your life like that. And, and so you get to a certain point in your life and then you look back and you think, wow, you know, when I was much younger and here I was with the kids at the beach in a photograph with you know all, all the kids at the beach and I was on the sand with them and we were building a sandcastle and it was such a wonderful afternoon and and then you remember but actually you know I was so worried 
you look closely at the picture and you see the wrinkles in your forehead and you realize I was worried that so-and-so was going to drown or the, um, you know, there was some anger going on about between two of the others or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you realize that was this moment where you were right there in something that from your perspective years later seems like heaven. Mm -hmm. But at that moment, you missed it. Um, Because you were worrying about other things. You weren't really 100% showing up Mm. for what was there. And he, he says that at some point in your life, you look back and you realize that, you know, maybe you may never get enlightened, but you have this consolation prize, which we all have, which is that if we can look back and realize that, yes, at that moment, from my perspective here, it was heaven on earth, but I didn't see it. I missed it because I was distracted by uh, not seeing things like interconnectedness, not seeing patterns of being, etc. cetera. Um, and here I am now in this stage of my life, and I'm thinking, oh gosh, wasn't it better 30 years ago? Um, and so I'm missing this part. Mm. And and so his he talks of it as the consolation prize, that when we can wake up to the fact that Yes, things are may not be exactly what we want in any given moment, but if we really look closely at what's happening and we also turn our perspective out towards others and the benefit of others, whatever we can do to contribute to that, then we actually are in heaven where we are right now, but we miss it over and over and over. And so... And his conclusion of that is that when you die and you go beyond it all, um, there is no time and space. And so you realize that actually the the moment on the beach and the moment now and the moment when you're dead, they're all one. And so, and because when you're dead and you have this flash of enlightenment there, you've been enlightened all along. Mm. So, <laughs> but it, but in terms of aging, that's what I've experienced is like, you know, you miss the the parts. Mm. You you mislabel in your mind that this is what's important. That I can put my leg behind my head, you know, and mm-hmm. and then you realize later, oh dear, I'm so frustrated because I can't do that anymore. And in fact, that's not what was the bliss to begin with. And so that doesn't really make it that much easier when you're on your mat struggling to do chatwari. <laughs> right. Um, but um, if you can take that meta perspective a little bit and see, well, where am I right now? And what, you know, what do I know from these years of practice? And what, you know, subtle body things like the pelvic floor can I tap into because I can't access some of the other fancy stuff mm-hmm. that actually are much deeper practices. What, what, what can I find now that's more mm-hmm. interesting or as interesting? Yeah. So let's say Chitwari. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you, you can say your shoulder is broken or who knows what's happening, you know, due to the influence of time. Um, you can create the prana pattern in the body 
of Chitwari mm. without even actually having to do it. Or you can do it and you can play around with it and you can do it, say, in a, on the moon or against a wall or something. And you can create that pattern in the nadis where you experience the central channel or what is actually delightful and important. Um, so even as the body deteriorates, you can still um, practice uh, intelligently because it's natural you know, to want to do a chitwari and to bounce around the room with it. But <laughs> you also see how silly that is because uh, if you actually... A really good chitwari is a central channel. Mm -hmm. You know, all of the nadis are pure, and mm -hmm. it's just like wonderful. And so, you can create that um, patterning in the subtle body of a good chitwari, and you can do this even if you're confined to uh, lying in bed due to uh, all of your other yoga injuries catching up with you. <laughs> Sitting just in a chair, mm -hmm. uh, you can still do very advanced yoga, but it requires that kind of uh, deeper practice. Mm. And I think that's a nice thing about this impermanence thing is you're being nudged along by time. Oh, just go deeper. It's much nicer, you know. <laughs> and the, the real thing is to not, you know, not give up on practicing and to notice what your um, perception of what practice means um, has become and recognize also that practice is whatever we think it is. Practice goes beyond that. Mm. So Richard often says, you know, practice all day, every day, all night, every night. Mm -hmm. First time he said that, I was, I remember going home to uh, my roommate and saying, you know, isn't that a funny thing? Ha, 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 ha. And then <laughs> realize like years later that, that that's really what he meant. <laughs> <laughs> and that, 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 you know, there's so much opportunity within mm. that. There's a, another thing that I, I remember about Bob from the videos that you all did together that I thought was just so funny when, um, he was talking about a conversation with the Dalai Lama, Dalai Lama obviously being um, of, an, of an advanced age, and him saying to him in this, this fantastic accent, like, why, why do you want to hang on to your body, your wrinkled old <laughs> ugly body? Why would you want that? Get out, move on. And, and I, and I, why would we want that? And the 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 question that I have is is I remember um, for example being in a in a art museum in Taiwan with Richard and we were walking through um, the 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 different exhibitions and we saw this beautiful long blade and Richard looked at it and he said oh well that'd be a nice thing to cut your head off with. <laughs> And I and I was like, yeah, it, it's it was very seductive in that moment. And like that would be really nice. And 
I'm so I'm sometimes I'm because I'm You're also, struggling with attachment and non-attachment. It yeah, sounds like yeah, at both. the same time. It, yeah. <laughs> There's this perfectionism to want to practice and be stymied by age. And then also this, this seduction of it'd be really great not to have to do any of this anymore. <laughs> yeah. How do you, how do you maintain the balance of your mind to, to get up and take care of children who they really have to figure this out on their own. And then also, you know, just, just to not be concerned about uh, the end of this game altogether. Well, I think you are concerned about it, but not, um, you know, not averse to it. Hmm. You know, concerned you're attentive to it and you um you it's a way of reminding us of the truth of impermanence and reminding us that part of what we are here for is to interface and be of service to others and so mm -hmm. when you can bring into your awareness that you know when i do my practice and and parents can can you know recall these moments where when you haven't done a practice and then it's a really tough day with young kids or something <clears throat> you don't have it together as well as when you do do a practice mm -hmm. very often however if you become so stuck in your practice that your kid is out in the other room wailing and you just ignore them that's not practicing at all mm -hmm. and so there's this balance where you realize the practice that is appropriate for you in any given moment is the one that helps you to be authentic, to join together the dis disparate parts of who you are and show up and show up not in order to be, you know, the star of the show, but show up to be a servant, to, to be there and be of service to others. See what can be done to benefit the bigger whole, which is actually benefiting you because as you know, you're part of the bigger whole, mm. but when you think, well, it's just about me, then you again have separated yourself out. You've dropped into a vidya. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think that as you, as I mean, in, you know, Richard and I are up there in age. <laughs> Um, and I'm, I'm going to be 70 next year mm -hmm. and, uh, or in a few months actually. And you look back and you think, well, what happened? Where, where were all those moments where I, I could have been awake mm -hmm. and many of them you are awake for, but many of them you aren't. And then as you get older and older, you realize time is running out and that's a good thing because it gives you the motivation to really try to pull yourself out of the center stage and see what it is you're actually here for, why you're who you really are and why you're really in this body, in this life, in this time. And what can you do to help? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's the idea of making an offering. Mm -hmm. So you say your whole body and mind are an offering, but you're never throwing it away. 
even in disgust, <laughs> but it's more like you're just letting it shine or you're mm-hmm. letting it go. Um, as is appropriate for it. But then there are so, those mornings where oh, you yeah, get up and mornings. you look in the mirror and you go, oh my God, um, <laughs> <laughs> what enough, happened? Enough of this. <laughs> um, so, so not to think that it's this ideal state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's still the aches and the pains and the, the uh, yeah, <laughs> the the imminent decay that's happening in front of your eyes. Right. Imminent hell, it's happening right now. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it wonderful to watch nature unfold? <laughs> right. It's almost, yeah. It's, it reminds me of when I was pregnant with Jedi and you sort of um, really are forced into a state of surrender where this thing is happening and it's completely <laughs> out of your control. And all you can do is just sort of like, try to make yourself comfortable while it's going on. <laughs> yeah, I always think of pregnancy as, you know, a lesson that women are fortunate yeah. enough to have and, and men don't have it. And it is the direct experience that I am not this body. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, really. Especially after suddenly one day there are two bodies there where there just used to be one Yeah, at that moment. It's really hard to say, I am this body. Yeah. I mean, something else happened there, and I'm not sure what. Don't want to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's 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 also like a, a beautiful um, sort of uh, peak or preview into the aging process in a way, especially if you're a practitioner, uh, you know, and you're pr- – practicing while you're pregnant because little by little those you know all those asanas start to drop away and you just like wave as they go by <laughs> and and you're like well I, I hope they come back one day <laughs> and so it sort of always felt to me like a like a little preview into um really learning that um yeah that everything is temporary and that it is transient and um, and that it's impermanent and, and you kind of get to practice that, uh, during that stage of life and it prepares you, hopefully, I hope <laughs> for, for aging as well. Yeah. 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 Mm. And I loved, um, I just wanted to go back to what Richard was saying about cultivating that like subtle energy pattern, that prana and the apana pattern within the body and that through our asana practice, we're, we're trying to do that, like tap into those subtle energies and that um, we can do that even without moving our body. Um, and I, I'm guessing because it's in our breath and maybe it's even beyond our breath. Could you just talk a little bit more about that, Richard? It was so interesting. Oh, um, yeah, it's again, being able to have a focus um, but what's making you focus uh, is inclusive enough that it allows the, you know, your deeper feeling, deeper sensation to be there. And so sometimes, you know, the, like in uh, vinyasa yoga, you know, you can, you can actually do very advanced vinyasa just by wiggling because it's all wiggling anyway. Uh, you know, you do upward dog, downward dog, and 
fly through the air and to this. And that's basically still just wiggling. And so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and so you can become a little more subtle in, <laughs> in the wiggle because you, we naturally, uh, when, you know, you observe something and you think you're being very still and silent, your mind creates a counter observation or a context for it. So if I'm focusing on something over to my left, my unconscious mind is opening up the field to the right. And so um, it can be just even my eye movement can be a vinyasa practice. Um, <laughs> it hasn't deteriorated quite that much yet. <laughs> it's coming. I don't think. <laughs> I noticed that the other night. It just all of a sudden I was because I do this for hours, I stare at my phone in bed and I... Um, <laughs> Not recommended. And I was just... No. And then all, all, of, haven't done that. all of a sudden, I couldn't see. And I had to pull the, the phone. I couldn't focus. I had to pull the phone away from my face to find a distance that I could see at. And it's like, oh, I'm suddenly farsighted. <laughs> And, yeah. and what I, but what I really thought of was my eyeballs like melting and rotting in space, you know, they're <laughs> in the, in my skull, my eyeballs are liquefying and like, that's they're actually hardening. What's what was, that's what was going on. And I'm like, this is, this is, this is, this is, um, this is getting intense now. <laughs> Yeah, it's an advanced practice. It's, it's just like a lot of the texts, they tell you to gaze at the tip of your nose or at an internal spot up between the eyebrows. Mm-hmm. And of course, you're not to focus the eyes there unless you're very nearsighted, but you actually create a, a, a space inside the head. Mm. Uh, and so eventually, uh, we'll have phone implants It's coming. It's coming. Oh, that'd be that'd very that'd be I'm helpful. very frightened now. That'd be helpful. Yeah. I saw that episode. It would be very helpful because you wouldn't have to look, you wouldn't lose your phone. It's true. It's true. It'd be more difficult to steal as well. Yeah. We'd need that sword it's from a, the museum. It's a benefit right. to society. I, I had heard, um, I was recommended on an email thread uh, Mary, that you have a a practice that's a kind of antidote to my afflictions, these undesired mental habits. And I is and is it stem from Bob Thurman? Did you say that harmony? No, I, um, I the lojong. Yeah, yeah, the lojong. Yeah. No, um, actually, um, I have. You know, we we both have have just tremendous respect for and appreciation for the Rinpoche, um, Kontrol Rinpoche, who happens to be um, Pema Chodron's teacher. Mm. And he's just this wonderful, wonderful, very humble, simple uh, teacher. And uh, we actually were... Not the Chugham Rinpoche who was taking lots of coke. No. Okay, not that one. As far as we know. <laughs> but he, 
No, he's he's just a dear and so sincere and so uh, he 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 uh, actually came and did a yoga class, private yoga class with us a couple of years ago, and we were all like, "Oh dear, you know, we didn't quite know who who he was, and you know, he's going to show up in his robes, and you know, do we do a headstand and <laughs> that kind of thing? What do we do with him?" <laughs> yeah. and he showed up and he was just wearing these ratty old sweatpants and a little t-shirt and was such an amazing learner. Like he just immediately got into the breath and the movements and the connections along the central channel because he'd been doing this work for, for years and years and years. And so he, he has, works with the Lojung practice, but also he teaches Pema Chodron. And I did a course with him recently and she had a, because she's his student, she gave one of the classes and she started talking about it. And I've known about these practices for years, but haven't done them myself and recently started doing them. And they are um, very short, almost like sutras, just Mm. little statements. Um, that are used to train the mind. So I think um, that's what they are. And you just, there are a couple of really good texts on this. Uh, Many probably, I know of a couple. And then you can go through the phrases one by one. and, And even there are cards that people have made so that it's almost like flip cards where you pick one out and you sit with it for a day or a week or whatever, and just let it resonate in the back of your mind that are teaching you to be um, more uh, just kind of about friendliness and about Mm -hmm. kindness and about how we become attached and how those are just natural things. And that once you practice, and start noticing those things, that's the step you use to start letting them go. Um, and and mm. there I have and I think I think Harmony, it was with you we talked about, you know, how the pandemic has dragged on and on and on. And <laughs> what happens when, you know, yes, it's all very good to say, oh, just let's practice and let's do this, that, and the other, but when you just can't take it anymore (laughs) you know like and and these these cards and these sayings are so uh straightforward and simple Hmm. that and they're like 49 of them or 52 of them or something like that and you just you know contemplate them and they let you see human nature and they also let you sort of have insight into your own habitual patterning. Mm. So for me, that's been a practice recently that I'm doing every day, you know, just carrying these mm. uh, around w- in my mind with me. Um, so very nice. Helpful. It sounds like yeah. a little bit like a cross between sort of uh, like a positive affirmation and also that Zen koan like kind of a yeah. mix of the two, a sort of a positive yeah. thing to focus on, but also something to contemplate and that interrupts or disrupts that mental pattern, whatever it is. Right. And they're not all positive. Okay. You know, okay. they're not all positive, um, but they are 
but if but their impact mm-hmm. the impact the sentiment is positive it's like they're if you practice you know you let go of some of the things you see through things they're a way of helping you to see through things and yeah they are almost like the positive affirmations and then i like that mm-hmm. yeah it's combination a koan it's so helpful to to have something like that to really train the mind to focus on you know something good or po- powerful but but that's real as well <laughs> yeah. you know that you can that you can hold um not just like you know i i'm a millionaire or something or i have a million dollars right. in the bank or something <laughs> right but um you know something that's that's a little bit more uh, rooted in spirituality. And to see the nature of the mind, mm. how even with this idea of aging or whatever, or courage, or so much of it is the sabotage of ego and mind. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the mind is slippery, isn't it? One of my, <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite Cohen's that, um, I think I, I got this book in high school. It was a book of Japanese koans. And one of them was the, the Rishi was walking in the snow and saw a monk had fallen in the snow and couldn't get up. And so the Rishi got into the snow next to him. It's <laughs> nice. It's nice. Yeah. It's nice. yeah. yeah. Like, what yeah, else are you going to do? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, help him That's out. <laughs> Make snow angels. <laughs> <Yes>. yeah. <laughs> the the last time we had you on the show, we spoke about your your book when love comes to light, uh, bringing wisdom from the Gita into modern life, which is a, a gorgeous text that we recommend to our our listeners. Um, recently you've created a course that, that complements this text called Living Yoga. And uh, we're very excited to be you know, studying the, the Gita with you online in this capacity. Um, I was looking through this, the syllabus, I guess you call it. There was one particular lesson that, that stood out to me, and I'd, I'd love to hear you talk as much about it as, as you'd like. Um, but this one lesson, lesson nine, Love as a refuge or a trap, and in a in a way, kind of reminds me of that of that Zen Cohen. Um, I wonder, could you could you speak about this and speak about this notion of of maybe maybe it maybe it relates to family attachment and uh, I'm not sure if that's true of it being being a, trying to be detached from your own attachment to your family. I don't know. Well, in lesson nine, we were wrapping the whole mm. thing up a little bit. And, you know, the the underlying theme from the Gita, the, if you have to just nail one theme down, <laughs> is, is bhakti, mm. is love. And um, so what happens often when we think of love is that we have a preconception about what that means. And of course we do. And yet 
if our preconception is uh, too solid and we don't really wake up to what love could mean in a more uh, sort of, in, in a way where we're really profoundly connected to others, then mm. we become trapped by our, our idea, by what we assume love to be. Yeah. So if we make love an object because, or an ideal, and we have images of what that looks like, um, you know, from watching the television or from movies or we have, mm-hmm. or then, um, or from reading the Gita and, or from and, reading yeah. the Gita and then reading <laughs> many of the commentaries and people's ideas about it. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we develop these, it becomes an object that we then grasp at. Um, and so basically the ego function, which is ultimately a divine function, unless you identify with it, then you're in trouble. Um, <laughs> it, it hijacks the, uh, the process. And, uh, and so th- you get all of these practices of, say, the practices of bhakti, but they can become what's called tamasic, or they're misperceived in such a way that one uh, practices in a way that actually is causes uh, harm to others, mm-hmm. uh, and you know by forming either a cult or by uh, just uh, becoming uh, dysfunctional in relation to other people, or rajasic, in which. Uh, you know, the, you become ambitious and you want to become, uh, oh, I, bhakti is the best, you know. And it's I'm the, only the way. best bhakti. It's the only bhakti. way. Look at me. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I used to call it, look at me bhakti. <laughs> and there's a lot of that that goes on in, you know, different people think, well, bhakti is the best, but they're not really looking into what the word means, even in the Gita, that it is a, composition of this wisdom, this sense of uh, connection to all other beings in, through the heart, uh, and this connection to the that one who is all other beings, who is Krishna. And so the, the book recommends that you take uh, refuge, uh, rather than, so people think, well, Krishna wants you to surrender because he's a, a powerful you know, autocrat (laughs) or a powerful politician. And you think, well, I'll surrender. And and people do that with their images of God. And then they become bitter, you know, a few lifetimes later. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it doesn't take that long. (laughs) Or a couple of days later. (laughs) uh, But the the book actually recommends shadhanam, which is the Buddhist term for refuge. And so if you take refuge uh, in something, it doesn't mean you, uh, that means you're, you're, we're with you. Like if, you, if someone comes to your house for refuge, they will usually bring, you know, at least something with them, hopefully, you know, right. or you'll spy for them, you know. Um, and, and so it's, it's curious how the, the, a lot of the terminology uh, is, if you've studied Buddhism, is actually Buddhist terminology that's being used. And refuge has in it this element of 
truly connecting. Um, and, you know, at the beginning of this talk, you, we were all talking about, you know, our showing up authentically and with all of the good, the bad, and the ugly parts of oneself, but in a grounded way, um, showing up. And refuge is when requires that there is this mutual giving of support and of space and as importantly this mutual offering of the authentic self as best one can um, which mm -hmm. then creates an atmosphere of trust and within that atmosphere of trust then problems that might be arising not necessarily interpersonal problems but the reason you've joined together in refuge th those uh, problems can be s seen more clearly and um, action can be taken with more clarity um, and it takes it takes this trust and trustworthiness is what we think about with this is that Refuge really is a two-way street mm. rather than, as Richard was saying, surrender can, mm. can easily turn into a one-way street where one person is more powerful than the other. And with, with the sense of refuge, it is not that. And in terms of love, you know, speaking of vulnerability, that's one of the ultimate uh, sort of aspects of our lives where within which we can be very vulnerable. And so it can be a curse if you, if you're not in a trustworthy situation. Mm. Um, so mm. love, you know, that's one of the, you know, if your ego takes over, if someone else's ego takes over, that's when it could be, you know, a curse if you can't see through it. Mm -hmm. mm. It um, reminds me a little bit this idea. I've I've never really thought about the, um, you know, I guess juxtaposition of refuge and surrender. But even like in a, in a marriage, when people come together, you're like taking refuge in each other. Versus like yeah. surrendering yourself to the other. Right. <laughs> Unless you live in certain countries. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's interesting because it creates that dynamic of, of, um, I guess like co-creating or that dynamic of exchange and that puts you sort of on equal footing more rather than a hierarchy. Exactly. And that's when, you know, it, something magical happens mm -hmm. because it's not what any e either side of it has their image of what it might turn into or what might happen. And because it is, there is this sense of trust and refuge, uh, the unknown manifests. And if we can keep grounded enough not to resist and fight whatever it is that's arising, which is hard, um, 
then there is this opportunity for extraordinary insight, extraordinary growth. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. It was, um, it's, it was kind of the most incredible thing that's ever really happened to me was falling in love with, with harmony because it was so comprehensive you know, it's like that saying in the, the the movie, The Matrix, where uh, the 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 prophet or the seer, whatever her name was, she said to um, Neo, "Like you feel it balls to bone." You know, <laughs> and uh, it really it it was that it you know it changed it changed my body, it changed my endocrine system, it changed my skin, like everything um, transformed. And then, um, you know, I was, I was, uh, drawn to Calgary, you know, and, and gay and basically, uh, gave up everything to, to come here and be closer to her. Um, I want, I, my question to you is, is if you've, if that must've happened for you, let's, let's make that assumption. <laughs> and, and then what, and then in the years following, how how to um, manifest love on the daily, and and continue <laughs> to 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 do this dance? How is there a for our listeners at home? Is there a best way to do that? Is there a formula? Yeah, a the hand, formula. Like That's what I want. Yeah, I want to. <laughs> yeah. I want a yeah, formulaic <laughs> way to do this. <laughs> I can I can address it a little bit. Richard's sitting over there, kind of swaying, swaying back, back and forth. I don't know what what you're thinking, um, and it's not always easy, you know. And and that's to be expected. Um, from my perspective, what I think uh, can help the most is to as difficulties arise to remember who this person really is um, that you, when I talk about meeting Richard, sometimes I say, you know, it's as if I finally met someone from my planet and I'd never met that person before. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, and to remember that, like you're saying, that visceral feeling of what that was and what that still is, because you're still those sentient beings who interfaced in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and then to catch yourself, like, with, uh, and be, you know, again, courage, but ha be brutally honest with yourself. Have the courage to be brutally honest with yourself um, and look at ways you might be uh, objectifying that one. Mm -hmm. If they are, um, you know, if, if you are not feeling that about them, how am I objectifying this person? Um, mm -hmm. What am I thinking about? Like, and an example I, I sometimes think about is when I first... When, when we first had our child and Richard, you know, I, I think it was probably much more um, 
foreign an idea to you to have a child than it was to me. Am I, I think correct? so. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> because I'm, you're the third wheel out. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I remember, you know, like, it was like just four or six weeks old or something. The baby was just, our son was that old. And, you know, I was so organized and getting everything done and blah, blah, blah. And Richard, and he needed a diaper change. Our, our son needed a diaper change. And Richard said, well, I'll go do it. And he took him into the bedroom and, you know, and I was in the living room and I, and then he didn't come back like for a long time. <laughs> I was thinking, at first I was thinking, wow, this is great. You know, I've got some space and all that. And then I was thinking, what is he doing? Does he even know how to change a diaper? You know? And I kind of walked by the room and he's sitting there with, with our son on the changing table, not in a diaper yet, but he had taken the old diaper off. And I'm like, oh my God. And I realized after the, like 20 minutes or something that I had this idea that you just, you know, you change the diaper and then you come back to doing what you were doing. And he was in this process of just spending time with our son. And part of it was changing the diaper, but they were kind of talking about things that you talk about with a little baby and doing things. And my concept of this is what it means to be an efficient parent. Right. If I had held what I that afternoon, I started laughing at myself, like, how silly am I to think that <laughs> rather than to see who this is as this as my partner who is doing something out of pure love and in the way that only he would do it. And I'm not seeing that. I'm, I'm like imposing my idea of what it means to change a diaper on the situation. And it that was it's a, it's a funny little sort of odd story, but that stuck with me for years. Like mm. it's nothing. How, how often do we project our ideas and onto someone else? And it's awful when we do it onto someone we love dearly. And then they will never live up to those ideas. And then if we're stuck with those ideas and we don't see who's there, then things go down the tubes quickly. Mm -hmm. I love that. So to me, it is being honest with yourself to see when you're doing that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah because we, it's kind of like we do that half the time. Yeah. You know? We have <laughs> ideals. You know, like, oh, I have the ideal of having no ideals. Uh, I want the magic of just, you know, uh, refuge. And, and, that always, and thus to see yourself doing that, and it's almost like, oh, you just kind of open, you just put it down. If you reject it and throw it away, you're like disgusted with your own mind, you'll be doing a lot of throwing away for a long time. But it's how to just place it down, you know, in the refuge. Um, and there's something satisfying about that. And then you look again. I and mean, then, and that's yeah, back keep, to the Gita. And that's the continue practicing. You're just starting the practice. Hmm. Uh, keep looking. Because uh, in a relationship with someone, even though, yes, you have this 
visceral memory of what it means to be with them that is rooted in the first time you sort of encountered them mm-hmm. or um, yeah. but then they too are changing as you are mm-hmm. and um, so it's important to keep looking and saying who are you now who are you today and that's really true with children yeah. you know <sighs> our son who's much older now <laughs> if I think of him as this little baby on the changing table I'd be doing such a disservice. But then as a parent, we can quite often get stuck with them in some phase that we have stopped looking at who they are. And then then we don't see them anymore. Mm. And then problems arise. Yeah. Or or you know, the same happens the other way. Children see us as we yeah. We all do it to each other. Yeah. And so to just <laughs> laugh about that and, and go, wow, okay. But and then probably the worst thing you could do is point that out to some to your partner. You're doing that again. <laughs> so so let, let them have their own insight about it. <laughs> I love that you bring up like the the evolution or the you know changing of the child and that we allow for that kind of change and different stages and phases and, and progress, you know, and it, it seems because their body's also changing as they're changing too, it, it comes a little bit more easily. Um, but when you take that same idea, I mean, even as, as full grown adults, we're still kind of going through that process, yeah. hopefully. I mean, hopefully we're not static, like two dimensional characters, you know, um, and and sometimes we forget to allow for that that newness and that growth, and we don't yeah. adjust our our um, space to allow for that for people, and that's so important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, Harmony, have- and then oh, I'm sorry. one other thing, mm-hmm. Russell, on that that is to um, you know to communicate, yeah, <laughs> with your partner. And I'm sure you do, and, but <laughs> there are moments for all of us where it's like it's very difficult to communicate. Mm. Yeah, and so to remember the power of that. Well, on a, what I'm constantly reminded of is is that her vision of me is rapidly deteriorating, <laughs> and her true understanding of what I am is becoming more whole, which is not in my best interest. <laughs> So that's a that's a that's problematic, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I love I'm with you on that and I understand <laughs> that one totally. <laughs> I like the I loved your story too of the changing table because it also reminded me as much as, you know, that's like because I often make this um, you know, sort of joke, but it's also not really a joke when I'm talking about, you know, motherhood and and practice, the vinyasa of changing the diaper. <laughs> and and it's so beautifully illustrated. You know, you can do the vinyasa like how, you know, perhaps you were doing it as the efficient mother, like zip, 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 zip. Okay, let's go, right? <laughs> or you can really just I'm like... the chai stand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, or you can really like like take your time and make it really juicy and like, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. as Richard was doing and that, that both 
both are good and both but you're going to get something from never, it. You but know? never get through Serena Mascara that way. <laughs> yeah, you might. <laughs> you might only do one. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was beautiful, beautiful uh, metaphor for even the way we approach the practice. Yeah. Um, so one other interesting thing inside the course that I, I thought sounded wonderful was uh, lesson six, which is called Our Own Sacred Cows. And I'm quite curious, what are your sacred cows? Yeah, what are your sacred cows? Us, personally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our own sacred cows. You're, you're like Broncos fans. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who are they? <laughs> oh, they're horses. Yeah, they're yeah. horses. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, they're contracted by the local community. <laughs> well, it, you know, to be truthful, I can't quite recall exactly what we spoke about in that particular lesson, but but sacred cows, what we were meaning by that is, yeah, is the things we uh, identify as sacred and the sacrifice, you know, what we interpret sacrifice and ritual to be mm-hmm. in our lives um, and how, in fact, um, you know, s- Ritual and sacrifice are things that are part of life too. Um, and again, I mean, uh, it, it's like a broken record in a way that you know we all have our sacred cows in in a sense, like they are our stuck places in some ways that um, we you know we stop looking at as as. Uh, fully mm-hmm. unless we start bringing as fully as we might unless we start bringing bigger context into it in which case and it's important to have things that have this sense of the sacred in them that that you see as sacred mm-hmm. um, that's an important aspect of getting out of your own story yeah. And that's the idea, that, again, of sacrifice, that you're giving something that has value um, to others. So it could be you're giving your sacred cow to somebody who needs a sacred cow. <laughs> <laughs> and there are a lot of people around the world who could use a yeah. sacred cow. And, uh, but that if it's, uh, and, you know, to really do that, uh, reverberates deeply through the body. Uh, and so that's one of the metaphors for, again, like deep yoga or actual bhakti is uh, to really give or to sacrifice uh, that which is important. Important, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, rather than simply being symbolic or something. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the idea of uh, like a yagna or that fire ceremony, that fire sacrifice even of like the heart in a way, like are you sacrificing your time or your energy or um, mm-hmm. different things like that? Is is there 
like what what else would we we sacrifice? What kind of the things would we get stuck and then have to like let go of? I guess our youth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take it. From well, and the, the ultimate is our knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's in the Gita what is spoken of is, you know, you sacrifice everything. In other words, you give it all away, not as a sort of in, in a, with an attitude of um, either aren't I great, I'm doing this, I'm giving, you know, all these important things away or an attitude of, oh dear, I'm going to have nothing left. This attitude of there's not enough in the world. That's not the attitude. The attitude of sacrifice is that it is um, pouring something into the fire as an offering uh, to others, Mm -hmm. to, Mm -hmm. to, that that allows your storyline, the story of me, the small me, rather than the larger. Rather me. than yeah, you're sacrificing that. Yeah, and you and the ultimate is knowledge. Yeah, and when you sacrifice it, it doesn't. So when you sacrifice knowledge, which is just your system of knowing something, the symbols, the you know the religious patterns. Um, it doesn't mean it's a bad thing that you're, you could have like, you know, the best traditions of, uh, you know, mysticism and yoga and, and still you sacrifice them or you place them down in front of all beings into the fire of pure awareness and you might get an upgrade. <laughs> so a lot of times sacrifice will give you an upgrade. A boon. Because... Yeah, you know the, the dharmas themselves cannot contain, or really, you know, they're just a scaffolding, and so the whole thing just leaks. You know, the reality kind of drips through all of the cracks, and so to to make a sacrifice with no residue uh, is considered the ideal in yoga. Mm-hmm. Well, on on that note, I we should probably let you all go you've given us an enormous amount of time and i know you probably have to get ready for your tailgate party yeah it's own <laughs> projecting again there, Russell. <laughs> so it's just, it's just such a pleasure to know that you two exist in this world and i'm just very grateful that you'd, you'd sit with us well, the feeling is mutual yeah nice to know that you're up there in the same time zone. I know, right? It's like it's like being on the same planet when you're on the same time zone. Yeah. It's so important. <laughs> it's, it's important to feel like you're on the same planet. Yeah. Oh, it was such a it was such a pleasure. I'm gonna I'm just gonna be relishing that reality dripping through the cracks of of all things right now that you left me with there and this beautiful, um, this beautiful course and wisdom and knowledge and book. Um, it's such a, it's just such a gift. And I know when I was taking a retreat with you both last summer, I can't believe it's been a year since then, but, um, you know, I was just, I was one day completely just awash and overcome with 
with such emotion and such gratitude and deep, I mean, I, I don't even know if there's words for it, but the feeling of of the wealth of your your experience and your knowledge and the richness of your your love and your ability to share these things, it just it's it's completely overwhelming. And so uh. <laughs> I'm so grateful that you came on and had this conversation with us today because it's it's just such a honor and a blessing to have have this connection with you and to be able to share it with others too. It's, it's unworldly, (laughs) otherworldly. Thank you both. And and, thank you so much. And, you know, to anyone who's hung in here till the end of this (laughs) podcast, deep deep bow, deep bow. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll be sure to, we'll be sure to add some emojis to the, to the end of the podcast. Thank you. Always wonderful to chat. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow, watching the breaking waves, there's a heart